So, uh, there we go. All right. Yesterday, um, I did a funeral for a, a guy that had lived a very long life, seemed like a really uh, neat man. But as his grandson was sitting there reading his, his um, I don't want to say obituary, what's it called? Eulogy, same thing, but you know what I'm saying. His eulogy, the thing that started to hit me is how much things have changed in 90 years. Like, things have changed a lot. They were trying to explain the, the valley, the San Fernando Valley, and I, I didn't know this. It used to be a bunch of chicken coops and orange fields, and as they were talking about that, I was just kind of blown away at what the valley used to look like, and they were talking about then all these things that happened in the 50s and 60s and, and 70s and 80s, 90s, even up to this particular point. But the thing that hit me is things have changed a lot. Now, I bring up all that just to say this. I really do believe this deep in my heart, and this is something I want to penetrate into who we are, that if the church doesn't change, if the church doesn't understand how it's supposed to change, it is one to two generations away from dying. That the Bible has built into the very fabric of what the church is, who we are, that we might be not just a church to God or a church to each other, but we are called to be the church to the community in which we live. And churches that do not change, they slowly get old, and as they get old, then they die. Why? Because we've lost why we should or we shouldn't change. Now let me just say this. The gospel never changes, ever changes. It is the same truth that it stretched itself out for the last 2,000 years that proclaims the amazing message of King Jesus and his salvation to a world and God's rescue plan of calling people back to himself, this amazing thing called the church that he has launched onto the world. The gospel never changes. Biblical truth never changes. But all throughout the New Testament, we learn, as Paul writes letters to different places, if we don't change Eventually, Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is going to take our lampstand, and we're no longer going to be the church that's going to be impactful in the place in which we live. Now, one of the things I mentioned last week is why this is so important for me personally is I have kids that are getting ready to come up through the church. They, one daughter has come to know Jesus, um, praying for the rest of the three that they would know Jesus. But as they come through the church, I want this to be a church in which they can grow and develop and understand who God is so that then they're not this kind of statistic that we read about all the time of kids exiting the church at an alarming rate. Now, I get there's all kinds of things that could go wrong. I'm not trying to say that if we do it perfectly, my children are going to be perfect. Trust me, I know my children aren't perfect. But the thing Paul's talking about is that we must change. Now, the way that we framed it last week was this way. We went to Galatians 5, and we were trying to understand this idea of freedom. And what does freedom mean? And especially, what does it mean that that Paul says, I'm free, but we're going to make ourselves slaves? Why in the world would we make ourselves a slave? Now, the point of it was is that, listen, there's this freedom that God has given you. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let me just say this to you. You have extravagant freedom, not only in your salvation, but to now live a life that God has called you to engage in. He has given you immense freedom. But in chapter 13, he says, be careful. Because in all of that freedom, your temptation is, is to begin to use your freedom now, not to serve others, but to serve yourself. In fact, the way that he then talks about it a little bit later in verse 15 is, is that that kind of freedom, what it leads to is a church that begins to divide because now it's no longer about Jesus, it's about me. We also talked about this idea that that love should spill over. In 1 Corinthians 9, it it, it talks about this, and this is the Net Bible. It says, for since I am free from all now, look at this, I can now make myself a slave to all. Why? In order to gain even more people. Now again, last week we thought, well, whoa, 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 time out, Todd. If I love to that extent, if we have a church that loves to that extent, then the question I'm going to have is that I don't, I don't take care of me and mine. Who is going to take care of me? And my answer was, the God of the universe has you. There is neither height nor depth. Nothing can separate from me from that love of God. If Jesus went all the way to the cross to rescue me, God, what he began in me, Philippians 1, 6, he's going to finish. He has me. So therefore now, I don't have to look out for me and mine. God has us. 
But that love now that's supposed to happen in the church is supposed to spill over into ways now in which to the Jews, he said, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as those outside the law, not being outside of the law, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak, let each of you now not only look to his own interests, in other words, now I'm going to, and this is, sorry, Philippians 2, now I'm not going to now think about myself anymore, but I'm going to act like Jesus, who did not look to his own interests, but also now to the interests of others, have this in mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, in other words, now go all the way, love extravagantly. Now, Paul's thought is, is if we do that, if we love to this extent, what's going to start happening is, is that now as we become all things to all people, that by all means, we might save them, and we're going to do it all, he says, for the sake of the gospel, and I love how the Net Bible puts it, so that we might be a participant in it. Jesus didn't save you to avoid hell alone. He saved each and every one of you. Now, just think about this. He rescued you to join him in the greatest thing ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ, an announcement to the world of the victory of Jesus, not only in my personal life now, but an announcement to the world that King Jesus is victorious and all of us that know him, he's now purchased us and called us to join him and that's what we are as a church. We're a victorious group of people joining him in what he's doing and the reason we shouldn't be in the doldrums as Christians is we understand King Jesus wins. Don't lose that. I think sometimes, like when we look around the world, we're like, oh, Jesus is losing. What are you talking about? There's gonna be a day, right, when we read about that he's gonna come back no longer as a servant. He is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And on that day, we will see mighty King Jesus now finally bringing his good reign to bear. And oh, what a phenomenal day that'll be. But for Paul... He's wanting to now ask this question, though, is how do we become that particular church? How do we become a church that loves each other extravagantly so that it spills out? Now, here's what we're going to do today, okay? I'm going to try to make the argument to all of you, and so you can watch me in this, you can follow me, is that we don't have to try to figure out how to love the world first. I believe that as we love each other to that extreme inside of the church, what begins to happen is, is that now we learn what it means to love the church or love the world in which we live. In other words, this place right here, all of us together becomes a phenomenal place in which we, and let me just put it this way, where we practice for the main event, which is now us loving people out in that world. I learn how to love in this place. We always used to do it, um, basketball was kind of my sport. I loved basketball, and I used to hate practice. I was Allen Iverson, I don't know how you remember him, but practice, practice. But I, I hated practice because it was all about the game until a coach one time started to under, help me understand that the practice and the practice and the practice and the practice is what makes you ready for the game. So what the church does now in this extravagant love, and we talked about this last week, it becomes this safe place to learn what does it look like, what Paul's gonna tell us where we become all things to all people. All right, so that's the argument I'm gonna make. So you can even write it down if you've got your notes. That's the argument I'm gonna try to make. Now here's how he does it. He's going to write to the Corinthians and he's going to try to help them understand something in which they weren't loving each other. In fact, there was groups of people that had found this freedom around this, this eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, at this particular time, it's kind of not right now, but at Corinth, is there were these many different temples, the different deities, and what people would do is, is they would take their meat in, <coughs> or their animal, the animal would be sacrificed to that particular God, then they would invite all the people that come along with them, and they would then, in honor of this particular God, they would sacrifice this animal, and they would have a big feast. They would kill whatever animal, and then they would eat it. This would be the way that they would honor this God. Now, not only that, though, but the meat that was left over, these priests in this temple would take this particular meat, and then they would have markets that they would go out, and they would sell the meat to people, and they, that's how kind of, in a lot of ways, towns would kind of funnel out meat. Now, if you can imagine being a Jew at this time, it was brutally difficult to find meat. In a lot of ways, this is where the term kosher came from. In other words, they begin to understand there needed to be certain meat that wasn't in any way defiled by anything. It was correct meat. Now, into the church, this began to creep where they started to understand, wow, I'm free. 
I no longer have to just live under kosher eating styles. I am free to go eat whatever I want. And this is why Paul says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know all of us possess this knowledge. Now what's he talking about? Well, there was groups of them that had found this freedom. And so they would go into the to various churches and they would say, you're free to do whatever you want. We can go and we can eat this food. We can buy it. We can go worship at these temples because we are free. And anybody that didn't have this knowledge, they would look at him and say, don't you know we all possess this knowledge? What's your problem? What is your problem? No, duh. What are you, big idiot? Now, verse two, though, Paul shifts it up. In verse one, he said, the problem with this kind of knowledge is that it puffs up, but he's now gonna get back to our key word. It is not now that I get to use my freedom for me, but he says, actually now, we use this kind of love to build up others. Now I don't have this meat now as this kind of badge that I wear that I went and ate at a temple or I bought meat from this particular place and I bring it in and I look at people and say, just eat it, it's no problem because Paul said you're eating with the wrong motives. Now here's the deal. We can be biblically accurate but we can have a heart that's absolutely wrong. I see this all the time in my own life and in other people's lives where we think because we have the correct information that somehow we've arrived. But for Paul, he says it's bigger than just having the correct information. It's not only having the information, but knowing how to use the information is also key. I grew up on a, on a farm and a ranch, uh, like I've told you about, in the great state of Wyoming where there's more cows than people. And I remember one time my dad, he was teaching me everything that there was to kind of drive a particular tractor and I looked over at him and I said, I got it. Now I went out and I took that tractor and I was mowing on a hill that was kind of at a slant like this and as I'm mowing along, all of a sudden the tractor began to slide down and the more that it slid, it went into a fence and as it went into the fence, I realized there's a huge difference between watching my dad do it and actually doing it myself. In other words, Paul says... Not only do we have to have the correct information, but we need to know how to use the information. This is key to us understanding how to love. See, I feel like so often what the church does is because we don't know how to do it in this context, boy, when we get out into the world, we have no clue then how to use Scripture in such a way as we engage with unbelievers. We walk around there somehow like the Bible is this ever-present thing that I'm slamming everybody with truth and I'm swinging it around, you know, going, God's word, and they're looking at you going, whoa. Why? Because we don't know how to use it. Paul says how you use it is just as important as understanding what's inside of it. He says this is the place that we learn how to use Scripture. We learn how to bring it into each other's lives, not as the means now of puffing up, but he says now this is the point, as the means of using it to be able to build other people up. And he says, look, if anyone imagines he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, in other words, you don't get it. Now the next place we find is in verse four. Now Paul's gonna affirm something. He's gonna go, you have the correct information. In other words, he's gonna quote out of the book of Psalms. He's also gonna quote the Deuteronomy 6, was the Shema, He's going to say, look, listen to me. The eating of food offered to idols, we know that, look, an idol has no real existence. Paul says, I get that. The way that Psalms conveys it is, it's just this idea that it's just a stone. It's, there's nothing that is really real about it. There's no God there. And he even says there's no God but one, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. For although there may be several so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet as for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In other words, your information is correct. Way to go. I'm so proud of you that you have correct information. But it also tells us something else, is that these people now that didn't want to eat this food sacrificed to idols, they did not have the correct information. Now this is key. Not only were they wrong, but on the other side of this, those that didn't know how to use God's word were also wrong. Now what Paul's gonna do next is he's now gonna come at these ones that thought they had the correct information. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge. In other words, there's a huge difference between having it in my head and actually allowing it to drift into who I am. He says, but some 
through former association with idols, eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now I see this all the time, especially around issues around like something like alcohol. The Bible tells us over and over again that we're to enjoy beer, we're to enjoy wine, we're to enjoy strong drink, and over and over we understand that, and when I first came to know Jesus, especially as a kid that kind of meddled in and around kind of awkward fundamentalism, I remember the first time I was able to drink, and it was just, woo! I flaunted it like crazy. I loved the fact that the Bible spoke to it. In fact, like I have a, a family members who, who were totally teetotalers, and I remember sitting there in front of them while they would all come together for family events, and I wouldn't just grab a beer. I would grab the biggest beer possible, and I would sit there like, ah, <laughs> like it was some kind of a scalp. There was also a guy that I get to know in college, a guy named Jason, and I, I was able to lead him to the Lord. We spent time together. He had come out of abusing alcohol and, and even drugs. And I'll never forget, I was trying to explain to him his freedom. It's okay, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have freedom. And I remember we used to go to parties, and when we go to these parties, we'd grab alcohol with different people, but it was the whole goal of being able to share Jesus. And so I took Jason along with me. But when we show up, a thing I forgot in my head is, is Jason has a past, and as we walk in there, Jason was kind of sitting there with his beer, and I kept looking at him going, it's okay, dude, drink, it's all right, you can have a drink, and he began to drink, and by about midnight that night, he was completely passed out, and we had to take him home. The next morning, he woke up, and I'll never forget this, he called me, and he said, I thought you were there to protect me. See, what starts to happen is, is when we start to use our freedom wrongly, not to build up what we should be doing, but in, or excuse me, not to build ourselves up, but to build others up, Paul's point is watch out because bad things can start to happen. Their conscience being weak is defiled. Not only that, but he says, take care of this right of yours that it does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, and here's what happened with me with Jason, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Now listen to me. Those of you that say somehow that people aren't supposed to drink, you are biblically wrong. There is nothing whatsoever in all of Scripture that says that believers in Jesus Christ shall not drink. You are wrong. But equally wrong is the person that takes advantage of their freedom and allows others to follow them into that freedom and stumbles. In other words, the point is, is be careful with your freedom. Not only is it correct information and knowing how to use it, but it's this idea of being careful with it. A few months ago, um, some friends of ours said, hey, why don't we take our kids out to this piece of property outside of Santa Clarita, and why don't we teach our kids how to use guns? Now, I grew up, when you were born, you came out, and they didn't give you a rattle. They gave you a six-shooter. <laughs> but I know my son. I was totally cool handing it to my oldest daughter because she's a worry wart. She's like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I love you. That's good. She respected the gun. But oh, when it came to my son, he's got the attention span of a gnat. And that gun is like this. <laughs> and we're all, whoa, whoa, you know, and you're, dude. He didn't know how to handle it. Now in this, he didn't know how to handle it because he didn't understand how much this could destroy somebody. So I pulled out, I've got a larger rifle and we set something out there because I wanted him to understand what could happen and I blew the thing up with my gun and all of a sudden he looked at me and he goes, I don't know if I want to shoot anymore, Dad. <laughs> Why? Be careful. This freedom is there for us to experience, and I don't want anybody to leave here now to say, oh, we do not have freedom whatsoever. No, you have this amazing freedom to join God in what he's doing, to love on others, to encourage and strengthen them, but Paul's point is, be careful with that freedom, because if you're not careful, people get hurt. 
Isn't it incredible? Something that can be used to build somebody up can also be used for something to tear them down. That's what Paul's saying. Now again, here's my argument. The more that we learn how to do this in the church, I hope you're starting to see in connecting the dots, the more now this can start to enter into our community is that God has given us this incredible freedom, but be careful, is his point, how you use that particular freedom. He goes on <coughs> in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 24, and he says, look, all things are lawful. You've got all kinds of freedom, but here's the kicker. Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, which is back to last week. We're building this church to be this radical lover of people. But again, we're thinking so that it might spill out. Now in 1 Corinthians 8, he kind of helps us understand the extent of the danger of it. He says, there's a way in which you can use your knowledge amongst this weak person, and we're going to talk about what this means here in a little bit, so that they're destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Now how do we do that? The conscience is this thing that's kind of our conscious morality. It's the way in which we know right and wrong. Now, when we're born, the Bible tells us that our our conscience is off. It's kind of skewed. And what God has to do is just to come into our life. And and the way now that this conscience gets straight is that God rescues us, gives us his Holy Spirit, and then the word of God begins to develop in us a correct conscience. The problem is, though, is our consciences tend to be off. And when our conscience is off, there are times when our conscience is screaming wrong and right when it should be screaming right and wrong. Paul's point is, is you need to be careful with this because when a person shuts off their conscience, in other words, they no longer hear the thing inside of them telling right and wrong, it's one of the most dangerous places a person can be. He says, don't do that. In fact, his point later is going to be, you have to help develop it. In Romans 14, 20 and 23, he kind of expands on this idea he says don't for the sake of food destroy the work of God in other words don't somehow because of yourself destroy what God is doing because everything is indeed clean but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats but whoever has doubts if he is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from his faith is sin in other words if you can't do this trusting your conscience don't do it is everything okay so again let me just let me go back here we are learning how it is to enter into the lives of people and loving them extravagantly caring about them knowing them being with them but again it's not for me it's to build other people up now, in 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, he kind of says the same thing. Look, it's not about food. We're no worse off if we do, no better off if we don't. But his point, again, is it's not about the food. It's about loving each other. Now, Romans 14, to kind of go back there, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So then, his point is, let us pursue what makes for peace for mutual upbuilding. Use the freedom you have to build into this church this case in which now it's righteousness and peace and the power of the Holy Spirit building unity. That's what we're to be about. And therefore, this is what he says. So if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest my brother stumble. Now for some of us, we're like, well, see, there it is. We curtail all of our freedom. See, the brother who does not eat needs to be trained because Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 is going to help us understand that that conscience that we have has to be made biblical so that we can reach into our community. So let me me see if I can explain it doing this. A lot of times when we look inside of the church, we have this idea of right and wrong. So therefore, if you're kind of with me, you're right, and if you're against me, you're what? Dang straight. Now, over and over again, we don't build their conscience using the word of God. What we do instead is, is we begin to imply or apply our conscience onto other people. I see this a ton, especially when I was a youth pastor. As I watched people raise their kids, which I will make the same mistake as the rest of those that have made their, that will also raise their kids. But what happens inside of a kid's life is we say to them, not so much here's the word of God to develop out your conscience. Instead, what we do is, is take my conscience. 
Now, when we begin to take on mom and dad's conscience, though, we forget that eventually those kids are going to leave. And oh boy, when they leave, and it's not their conscience. In fact, what used to be wrong is now right, and what used to be right is wrong. I will never forget this, man. When I walked away from my house, I had a healthy fear of my dad, and it was great. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it in the least. But it took me about six months, because I'm slower than most of the rest of you, but about six months into it, I suddenly realized my dad is a thousand miles away from me. Oh my gosh. What used to be right became wrong. What used to be wrong became right. And off the deep end, I went. Why? Part of it wasn't I wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ yet, but the other part of it was I abandoned my parents' conscience and I replaced it now with my own. Paul doesn't say just leave them there. His point is now to come in and to develop out their conscience. What we need to do instead is to teach them biblical truth. We start to teach them what does this freedom actually look like. We, we teach it from one end to the other. We, we teach all the gamut of what freedom looks like. So in other words, if we have one person, this would be the case like in 1 Corinthians 8, the person that wants to eat meat, he's on one end of the freedom scale and he's saying, I have the right to be able to eat this meat. The other person's on the other end of the spectrum saying, yes, but the problem is it's wrong. You like this art? Come on, it's good stuff, isn't it? There's more where that came from. Just hold your chair. For Paul, though, he wants everybody to understand both are wrong. Both are wrong. Those that have incorrect information and those that don't know how to use the information are wrong. I just want to stop for a second. It is not just giving people correct information. It's showing them how to use the information that they have. So often when people come into my office for counseling, they have all the right facts. They can recite at me so quickly the different facts that are biblical truth, but the thing that they don't know is how to use that information in such a way that it edifies other people. Now what Paul's gonna do that's interesting is is he's gonna say to those that are eating the meat, he says, look, this is how my body operates. I want for you to go to the one who is weak and I want you to reach out to them. I want you to go clear over, he says, verse 13, even if it means that you don't eat meat anymore, sacrificed to idols. I want you to go all the way over to them. Now he says, don't cross into the other side where they are, where somehow they say that there's no way to eat, eat this meat. But his point is, go as far as you can to them and then beckon them back into understanding truth. The point being that we need now stretch their conscience, help their conscience to understand biblical truth so that at the end, what it is, is they come into this freedom. Now, for most of them, they're not going to understand it, so we have to show them how does this freedom work. The, the way that I can use now the freedom God gives me to go love people over here and to go love people over here, no matter who they are, I can love them. I don't care if there's somebody that goes to the biker church that we've started. I don't care if there's somebody that, that is, hangs out with student ministry. Across the board, his point is, I can go into these different worlds with the freedom that God has given me, and I can love people. Not only that, but then I can show them how this works. Let me just go back really quickly. When we talk about this particular freedom that we have, and this is something to get into our minds, the middle is not the safe place. Now, the other day, my, my kids, we were, we were playing around on this log, and my son, who's adventurous, was all over the log, but my, my daughter found out that the safest place to be on the log was right in the middle. And so she got on that log, and she just began to hold on to it like this. And we were shaking the log and doing all kinds of things. And my son is falling off everywhere. And my daughter, when we got done with it, she said, see, I didn't fall off the log. I said, yeah, because you sat in the middle. Paul is not calling us to sit in the middle. He's calling us to love extravagantly to the edges. Now, the difficulty of going to the edges, though, is that people inside the church start to get a little nervous. If we go too far to the edge, they could fall off. Yes, and then there's this amazing thing called the gospel that gets them right back on. Yeah, but we don't want failure around here. Are you kidding me? Some of the greatest lessons that I learned, not because I want people to fail, but we learned some of our greatest lessons from failure. 
And those people that sit in the middle never learn lessons because they're just sitting there scared to death and all the while God's going, get out of the middle, go to the edges, love people to the extreme. Go love the people that are on one end that might be our Jehovah's Witness friends or our Mormon friends that are sitting over to one extreme over on this end, not wanting in any way to figure out their freedom. Go love them on that end. Go to the other end, those that are now caught up in sex, drugs, and rock and roll and dating girls that are even engaged in them. I mean, it's just like, Jesus, go to the extremes. Now, here's the key, though. In this freedom that he's talking about, some of us can begin to think, well, what if I fall off the end? Well, what starts to happen is, is that we start to learn what the actual boundaries are. The longer and the longer now that I understand biblical truth and I begin to live it out, I understand the real boundaries that are out there, not the ones that I've placed on myself and not the ones that others have placed on myself, but I start to learn these boundaries in such a way that I know exactly where it is that God wants me to be. Now, it's interesting because if some of you are like me, you were raised in a home in which the boundary was put on one side. It was say no to sex, say no to drugs, say no to rock and roll, say no to to girls that do and to chew. And I mean, it was just, everything was just say no. Nancy Reagan would have been proud of my parents. (laughs) But they begin to erect a boundary there that said this far and no more. Now, the interesting thing about putting up an incorrect boundary, though, is that we don't begin to teach freedom. We don't see the other side of it. We don't understand the freedom now that God gives us, and so, by golly, we are not going to talk about sex. (laughs) It is just say no. Maybe we need to talk about it, though. Maybe we need to go into scripture and understand that God actually talks quite a bit about sex. It's a phenomenal thing. It's a wonderful thing that he's given, but here's the kicker to two people that are what? Married. So therefore now, I don't have to put a line up there. I need to understand now what it means to put myself correctly in this freedom to honor God and to love people. What about alcohol? Just say no. No, Paul says, no, don't erect a boundary that's somehow going to get between you understanding freedom, but if you're under age of 21, we start to understand, no, it's against the law, so I'm going to place myself in that particular point. But that does not mean, though, that we don't teach healthy views of alcohol. In fact, I think a lot of people get caught up in unhealthy views of alcohol because someone didn't teach them healthy views of alcohol. Some of you are sitting there going, oh, no, my kids are here today hearing this. Good science, life, everything, Paul says. Understand this freedom you have. That doesn't mean you need to go there, but you need to understand it because here's what starts to happen. When you put up false boundaries, eventually what's gonna happen is kids leave your home and they go off the deep end because they never understood the freedom Christ had given them. They need to understand it clearly. Now here's how it applies to the world. The more and more that I begin to learn my freedom across that scale, then I learn how to go into the world in which I live. See, I understand the boundaries that are on both sides. I understand how far I'm supposed to go. But when Paul said, I became all things to all people that I might save some, what that meant was is that literally he was going to take advantage of every aspect of his freedom. Now, oftentimes what churches do is they say, well, then we'll let certain people go this direction and certain people go that direction. And and then we've kind of got it all covered. But actually, Paul's point is, no, we need to learn what it looks like to go and cross the entire spectrum. We need to be able to go to those that are under the law. We need to be able to go to those not under the law. We need to go to Gentiles. We need to be able to go to women and men. We need to be able to go to every tribe and every tongue and every nation because the gospel that we believe in is robust and strong and able to cover everything. His point is, go into those extremes. In fact, his whole point is, is to those that are now on one end of the spectrum, the way that we go is we actually now go become them. Without crossing a boundary, we become them. What does that mean for a church? Well, on this end of it would probably be those that are more maybe what we'd call legalistic. They live by a set of rules and regulations in who they are. And Paul says, go over to them. And even if you need to become legalistic without going over the edge, go over there to reach them. Love those people. 
Man, my wife grew up in a massively legalistic home, and when she was ready to get away from it, she was so happy, and the thought of going to that extreme over there for my wife is absolutely anathema. She doesn't want to go there. That was until she started to develop relationships with people that she loved on that side. Now, the whole goal, though, is to, again, meet them where they're at. Cornerstone, if we do not become a church that meets people where, we're, where they're at, we are going to become a church that's no longer now for our community. It's just going to be for us and no more. We flex and we stretch and we're pliable. Why? Because the gospel is robust. On this hand over here would potentially be the, the Trump people, the God's gun and glory people, me. Dang it. I'm kidding. I'm really not. I'm more of a lover than a fighter. But on that end are those people. And yet what oftentimes so often is the church goes to that end and mocks them, makes fun of them, missing the fact that those people, the gospel is robust for them. Paul says also then that we need to go the other way and we need to invite them and have conversations with us. A group of people that I think the church is massively uncomfortable with is the homosexual community. Now some people say, yeah, but we can't become all things to all people. We're not gonna become gay, are we? No. But you go into their world and you begin to know people and love people, engage with people, spend time with these people, get to know them and start to realize that what makes them a human is not their sexual identity, but what makes them a human is that God created them in his image. They have a dignity bestowed upon them by God. And oftentimes, though, they're wanting to understand who is this God that you're talking about. But because then we sit back as Christians and lob bombs to the other side, they never begin to learn what does it mean for a group of people to embody like Jesus Christ did, the incarnation, and to come to them and to love them. Paul's wanting us to know this is the type of love I'm talking about that we learn inside the church. As we learn to love different people in here, we now learn what it looks like to love people out there. Now this passage of scripture used to always, I used to think this passage was now for the people that were super elite Christians. Paul comes to them and now says, these are the type of people I want you to be. I want you to be pliable. I want you to be agile. Because these particular people, he says, you need to understand that you're in a race and all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So in other words, don't sit in the middle. Don't play it safe. Don't sit there, like, I feel bad, but like my daughter was going, I think I'm winning because I'm in the middle. God says, no, now what you need to do is run that you might obtain it. Learn what it looks like to get into all these various aspects and forms of our society. Learn what it looks like to love them. Go out there, and I dare you to do this. Go love somebody that you normally wouldn't love. Go find somebody that you think, oh my gosh, I would never, ever hang around you. If you're someone that grew up here, because there's plenty of people, go, go love a cowboy. Some of you are like, I am not loving a cowboy. people extravagantly go find out who they are this is the point of Paul go learn them go understand what makes them tick sit down across from them and hear their story learn where it is that they're coming from and what they're about learn why they're the way that they are but you're learning all these things being with them understanding them getting to know them because you have the greatest message of all time the gospel of jesus christ that they don't know it but they desperately need it you're learning who they are so that you can now begin to say, see this gospel and all those questions that you have in your head and the wonderings about why it is that I'm on this earth and what it is that this whole thing is about? You're coming in now with the greatest message ever and saying, I have the answer for you and it is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But you will never get that opportunity until you slow down long enough and actually become all things to all people that we might win some to Jesus. I would also say this. I think the best cultural exegetes, the people that understand culture the best, are under the age of 35. Now, Rick, can I pick on you? Okay, I was going to anyway. <laughs> A few years ago, Rick and I started talking about the relationships he had and, 
uh, one of the things that he mentioned was he just noticed a lot of guys were a little bit older and and um, I thought, wow, they must be on the edge of the grave if they're older than you. I, did. I didn't really say that. I just thought it. Um, but in kind of one of our conversations, we kind of challenged each other, like, what would it look to go hang out with younger men? So he began to ask the question, okay, what does it look like? So a bunch of younger men began to hang out with him, and we were in Panera the first time we started to talk about it, and I think the words were, I have no clue about this younger generation. They make no sense to me. But he hung in there, and he loved them. And he started to hear their story and what made them tick. The most fun thing in the world that I saw in Rick is the more that he hung out with those young men, Rick also now began to change. He began to be shaped now to love not only these guys, but I think he became now more and more what Jesus wanted him to become, which is this person that becomes all things to all people so that by all means we might save some. He learned what was going on in the mind of younger people. See, the reason that we need young people in this church, trust me, they don't give a lot. They, 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 they probably don't have the, quote, things that we want from them, but what they have more than anything is the capacity to teach us as a church what does it look like to reach the next generation. In other words, what that means, those of us that are older need to Listen. If we don't listen to them, and here's what I started with way back when. If we don't listen to them, one or two generations and this church dies. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of younger men, as Rick found out. I mean, he, he, he had to tell them truth about things. He needed to teach them life. He needed to expand their understanding of what it is. And, and I would say those of you that are younger in here, don't grow impatient waiting for us to catch up to you in your culture because Paul's whole point is, is be patient for people. Allow them to develop. Those of you that are younger, find somebody older and get to know them. One of the coolest things that ever happened to me as a youth pastor is this lady that was an older woman in the church walked up to me and she said, I don't understand young people. She goes, so what I'm telling you is, is I'm now a part of your youth staff. I'm thinking, you're cookie duty. First night there, she walks in and this lady was always dressed to the nines, man. She was decked out she walked in in her dress and her high heels and comes over to a group of kids and all of a sudden she plunks down on the ground and looks at all of them this is the words out of her mouth i don't really understand a lot of you all and how you think and so i just wanted to be your friend and learn what does it look like in your particular world so that i can be a benefit to you i'm thinking she's sunk she is done dagger in her heart oh my gosh week one and she's over what started to happen though was amazing all these kids started to absolutely love her she became in a lot of ways the mascot of our student ministry that sounds bad because now she's dead but she just became like this i know i don't mean it like i know i'll have to come up with a different word for second service but she She became this lady that literally all the kids began to rally around and she had another older lady, their their names ended with lean and so we called them the lean sisters and and, and she also started to come in. In other words, what started to happen is is that as they began to come into the ministry, people that were younger began to slide over towards her and she began to slide over towards them and I think they began to land inside of what God wanted for biblical truth. I didn't get to go to her funeral, but I so wish I could have gone to her funeral. I so wish I could have told that story of a lady who in no mean possible did I ever think she would be there, but she learned how to reach high school kids, and even as we had unbelieving kids came in, they learned to love her just as much as the rest of them. Paul said, inside of the church, we learn to become all things to all people. Why? Because we have the greatest message ever. Learn to stretch. Learn to be flexible. Don't complain about the loudness of the music. Instead, look around at younger people and go, oh, I'm so glad my ears hurt so they can be here. Those of you that are younger and go, oh my gosh, this morning was so doldrummy. I thought this whole thing was never gonna get over. 
Be excited, though, that God's people are being fed and edified and encouraged. And I think the more that the church begins to think less about itself and more about each other, it spills over into a community that is desperate for Jesus Christ. So, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, may you leave here this week and become all things to all people that by all means we might save some. Amen? All right. Watch, we'll have a video. My name is Alan Waters, and this is my wife, Kathy. We have three girls. My oldest daughter is Jennifer. My middle daughter is Beth. She's married to uh, Adam Nicholas. And my youngest daughter is Amy Waters. So I encountered Jesus for the first time. It was through my cousin, who was like a brother to me. He was four years older. His name was Denny. The family had been going through this transition, as sometimes happened, uh, where uh, several people had gotten saved at Billy Graham Crusade. And so we started attending a church, and, you know, we hadn't gone much before then, but uh, it was my, my cousin, and uh, he, he shared Christ with me, and it, it really, I, I started getting it and understanding that uh, I needed to have a Savior, that I was sinful, and I needed to be a follower of Jesus. And, and just he explained the whole thing to me, and from that time on, I was a follower, and uh, that's how it was. I encountered Jesus for the first time. Actually, I grew up in a church that taught the Word of God, but it was mostly head knowledge and not heart knowledge, and I eventually just dropped out of the church. Um, and it wasn't until I got into college that I was approached by two women from Campus Crusade for Christ, and they shared this little booklet. Cause I, in my heart, I actually thought I was a believer and was going to heaven if I lived a good life, you know? And so, in honesty, I really did not know I was walking in disobedience. And so at that point, I got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ and was able to then learn the truth and the grace of God and, and then move on from there. And in fact, some of the kids at the college said, why don't you go to church with us again? You know, and they gave me a Bible and I said, all right. I said, is it a good pastor or what? And they said, oh, we think you'll like him. His name is John MacArthur. And I said, oh, is he any good? And they kind of laughed at me and I said, yeah, you'll, you'll get it. You'll get the word of God through him. So that was really how it all started. Just going through the first week at Grace Community Church, I learned more then than I had in my whole life. And he only went through one verse. So it was, yeah, it was an amazing time through that. What am I most passionate about at Cornerstone? You know, I believe the church is just uh, getting attacked as much as ever in this day and age and families are crumbling left and right and so it's just a passion and heart of mine to to want to help in those areas we've we've had times where we've been able to counsel and, and walk with people as they've walked and struggled through some hard times and we all go through difficulties in a marriage and so it's just good to know that uh, other people uh, can come alongside you when you need that help to strengthen you. And so uh, that's, that's the big thing. I want Cornerstone to be known as a group of people that are true followers of Jesus. I, I, I mean, certainly we need to be known that we, we abide by God's Word and His truth and don't waver from that. But if we just spend all of our time, you know, in the truth and we don't apply it in our lives, in our walk, whatever they may be, then, um, you know, we're just kind of a mouthpiece, so to speak. And so I think my heart is, is that we never uh, forget the gospel of living it out and applying it and, and having that where we always realize that there are just people around us all over that don't know the Lord and need to know the Lord. Morning, Cornerstone. I'm going to make myself comfortable here. I'm glad they uh, cut off my bald spot on half of that so they didn't have to see it. 
Um, certainly what Todd talked about this morning, um, uh, we're going to be stretched. And as I said in the video, I think the church does get attacked as, as we're out in the world, which most of us are out daily. We do get attacked. And so I'm going to give a little preliminary for next week. Uh, it's going to be on uh, the armor of God and spiritual warfare. That would be my prayer this morning. So would you bow your head and pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, as, as we come before you, we just want to take a moment and thank you for your word. Lord, as people who are here today, we're followers of Jesus Christ and have put our faith and trust in Jesus. We're thankful that we know ultimately that Satan's power over Christians is broken. The battle is won through Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, which wherever conquered the power of sin and death. We also know that we live here on earth. We will battle temptation. This place is a spiritual battlefield, and it's not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and his spiritual forces that the battle rages. Thanks that you've given us your armor in this battle. I know that as believers, as we walk in the Spirit, we will be attacked and we will be tempted. Satan is not like the world makes him out to be. He's a crafty deceiver, and he twists and turns things in ways that we don't even know when we are being deceived. Lord, we're called to put on your full armor and keep it on. It's a lifetime battle. Help us to recognize that we are not on a holiday cruise. We are on a battleship, and we need to have your full armor on both individually and as a committed local body here in Simi Valley. Together, we're able to stand firm against the wiles and schemes of this devil using your armor, not our own. So, Lord, help us all to use your armor provided to us, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness or holiness, the shoes that ground us in your good news, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. Help us stand firm, arm in arm with each other. Help us walk in obedience as we do that. Lord, help us to walk in faith, not in doubt, to understand your truth. Help us to be immersed in your word. The sword of the Spirit is the only offensive weapon we have. Lord, help us to show grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ around us that we might be able to restore one another as we are susceptible to Satan's deceit. Lord, in, in the passage in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, um, Paul does not ask for his personal well-being. He asks for boldness, faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel, no matter the cost. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We can't. We just can't. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us, and we need each other to stand on that battle line together as a body of believers here at Cornerstone. That is my prayer this morning for this church, that you would help us to fight this battle with courage and with boldness. I just pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said,